We stopped last time talking about, uh, just before we talked about the Renaissance, right? We talked about the revision, Thomas Aquinas. Let's pick up with the Renaissance then, 14th to the 16th centuries. Um, so up to this point, we have this uh, sort of the beginnings of experimentation in science. Um, it's beginning to be accepted by the church. Um, it's beginning to be legitimate, a legitimate way to understand our natural world. And so um, this period is really going to be marked by huge uh, amounts of exploration and uh, discovery, both exploration of the physical world outside of Europe, but also uh, exploration and discovery of the world in Europe, um, chemistry, uh, physics, biology. Um, and philosophy. Philosophy is going to be very active in this time. And this tension still sort of exists between the church and empiricism. Um, so Copernicus uh, gets into a whole lot of trouble when he suggests, you know what, the earth, contrary to what the uh, church says, the earth is not the center of the universe. Uh, and in fact, uh, it revolves around the sun. The sun doesn't revolve around the earth. And that gets him, him into a whole lot of trouble. He goes into a house arrest. He can't uh, practice his science. Um, but really what winds up happening is over time, science and experimentation begins to really increase during the period that's called the Enlightenment. Um, and what winds up happening is because scientists can now operate um, without too much interference from the church, uh, we start to see some cooperation among scientists. And that's real important because science is really built on a series of experimental findings that inform later uh, experiments. The experiments that we're running today didn't come out of nowhere. The experiments we're running today came out of experiments that have been run in the past, and we try to extend those experiments or try to see if there's some exceptions to them or try to understand how phenomena might be related. And so there's a real, it's really important that science and scientists communicate and cooperate. So whenever we run an experiment and we find some experimental findings, one of the main goals is to publish those findings in some kind of a journal um, or someplace that's accessible to other scientists so that they can work off of your discoveries and build something new, build new discoveries, build new information and new knowledge. Um, now, as I said, uh, the sort of what will kind of loosely referred to as the physical sciences, chemistry, physics, biology, astronomy. These sciences are, um, are developing at that time. But in terms of psychology, there really isn't anything. And what we mostly have is philosophy. And so let's look at sort of some of the philosophical uh, origins of psychology as we go through. And really, one of the major philosophers that's going to be important in terms of informing the discourse on psychology is Rene Descartes, right? I think, therefore I am, right? That's the famous uh, Descartes quote. Um, he wrote uh, a book called The Passions of the Soul in 1650, where he lays out the ideas that um, nerves, uh, by this time biology had discovered that Inf sort of information and uh, motor movement was transmitted by these fibers that run through the body called nerves. And he said um, there's a relationship uh, between nerves and behavior and mental processes. Um, and this is really the first kind of foundation of understanding that biology is really related to behavior and that there's some systematic way we can understand that. If we can understand how these nerves function, we can begin to understand more about 
the relationship between biology and behavior. So he actually uh, proposes that emotions, which prior to this time were considered very um, ethereal, they sort of came out of nowhere. Um, and the Greeks sort of considered emotions to arise from changes in inside your body, but it wasn't really clear exactly what was going on. And he started to uh, make a real clear logical argument that emotions are a product of physiological experience. And so um, that's something that's going to be stu studied later on, and that's something that, uh, that we'll be looking at here in class. Last thing that I talk about when I talk about Descartes uh, is the idea that um, he's a dualist. He is not a monist. He believes that the soul is distinct from the body. And, um, and it really is the thing that distinguishes humans. And that's kind of one of the th things that he talks about in Passions of the Soul, uh, that, that it dis the soul distinguishes human higher functions from these sort of animalistic, basic, biological functions that we have. And here's, here's an idea of how he does that. Um, he, um, he kind of conceives of what we do to survive as very primitive. But it's these higher functions, he says, that are important um, for determining our um, advancement as human beings. And these he attributes to the soul rather than the body. So there's this really kind of dualistic idea going on. The next philosopher, now Descartes was uh, in France. Over in um, England, we have uh, John Locke, who's operating around the same time. Uh, Locke, uh, some of you probably know from maybe US history courses. Why? His ideas of free, I don't know about free trade. He might have done some stuff with free trade. Mostly, um, most of the time you hear about him in terms of democracy. Thomas Jefferson used a lot of Lockean uh, philosophy when he uh, developed ideas for the Constitution, for example. So, um, but he actually did quite a bit of work in empiricism, and he proposed something very radical at the time, that everything that we know arises from our experiences. We aren't born with any sort of knowledge. You know, God doesn't give us knowledge when we're born. We're born, as he called it, a blank slate, or actually what he refers to in his essay as a piece of white paper without any words on it. And that it is observation, he says, um, that provides this understanding, this knowledge, and these ideas. Because what he's interested in is the idea that, the idea that we have a lot of ideas, the, the principle that we have these, this incredible diversity of ideas and one person can have all these ideas, all of these concepts in their minds, abstract concepts like whiteness, um, tangible concepts like hard, right? Um, uh, abstract concepts like democracy, right? These are very difficult uh, concepts and ideas to have in mind, and how do we get these ideas? And he's going to say um, it's um, observation and empirical knowledge. And that's important because that's going to be one of the basis of, uh, of science in psychology is observation. And we'll talk about that when we talk about uh, psychology as a science in a few minutes. This is from... Uh, his book, An Essay Concerning Human Understanding. I forgot to bring it along. I have a copy of it. I was going to usually quote from it because it's this really amazing 17th century writing that, um, you know, you just don't hear anymore, right? Okay, so 17th century has Descartes and Locke. Um, coming into the 18th century, we see a couple more thinkers that are going to inform psychology in terms of the philosophy that they use. Um, Berkeley is actually a theologian and a philosopher. And George Berkeley suggests, um, 
he, he follows up on Locke and he says, yeah, it's okay. Experience gives us um, these ideas that we have, these concepts, these mental images and um, our ability to do these mental processes. Um, but what's, you know, this is all unified. These mental ideas, these mental processes we have work together. There's some sort of overriding power or force that's pulling all this stuff together and allowing us to use it. And he says, it's great if you have a house full of furniture, for example, but until you have somebody who's an interior designer and that person comes in and sort of coordinates how all the furniture is arranged and how it looks and how it functions, you don't have much, right? You've got a bunch of separate parts. But he says this stuff is all connected and the answer for him must be the soul um, that unifies all of this stuff. Uh, but even more so, since he's a theologian and a philosopher, he thinks that God is this unifying force. God provides us this unification of all this random stuff up here. Right? Um, David Hume comes along and counters that, and Hume says, um, okay, yes, we've got this sort of sense of self, but does it really need some unifying principle? Does it really need some unifying force that's going to pull it all together? Or is it really just this collection of sensations? And what happens is there are associations that form between these sensations and these ideas. And it's the process of living, the process of experience, that gives us these associations. And this is what's going to turn into uh, what's known as, going to become known as the associationist school of understanding human behavior. And this is really uh, the basis of behaviorism. So when you read chapter one, uh, one of the uh, perspectives in psychology is behaviorism. The idea that uh, we learn through associations. And that's really what Hume is saying here. We pull all this stuff together by our experience and by the associations we make between these very separate things. Right? So Descartes and Locke in the 17th century, Berkeley and Hume in the 18th century, 19th century, here's what's going on. Um, in addition to the philosophers that were still work, that were still building on Lockean ideas and Hume's ideas, uh, we also have um, some physiologists that are busy at work figuring out uh, bodily processes. And most of these are going to be, most of this work is actually in humans especially, is going to be going on in Germany. And so one of those uh, physiologists that's going to be interested in human behavior is Weber, uh, Ernst Weber. And Weber uh, is interested in how we perceive the things around us. Um, how we, for example, um, when I pick this up and I compare it to picking this up, how do I know that this is heavier than this? And how do I know that I can tell a difference? Um, and what he's going to do is he's going to run a series of experiments looking at how we perceive our sensations, how our sensations are turned into ideas in our minds. And that's really psychology. You know, he's doing psychology, but he's doing it on a very physiological level. Um, and then we pick up now with Wundt, Papa Wundt, Wilhelm Wundt, which your textbook talks about as the first psychologist, certainly the first scientific psychologist, the first psychologist that's going to use the scientific method and use the lab uh, to study behavior. And he actually starts running a bunch of experimental studies on reaction times. And that's psychology. That's really when we can say, Someone sat down and studied human behavior, uh, you know, a person's response to a stimulus in a very systematic, scientific way. 
you know, he would give them a stimulus, and he built this um, incredibly complex um, device to measure very short amounts of time uh, called a chronometer. He built this chronometer, and this chronometer um, was this big brass instrument. It's kind of funny because, you know, we're coming out of the development of the physical sciences, so chemistry, biology, physics, and they have all these, bless you, they have all these instruments, all these apparati, apparatuses, apparatuses, apparati, um, what's that? Either one, thank you. Um, so all this apparatus, um, you know, these glass pipes going everywhere, and, you know, physics has all these brass um, instruments that are measuring physical properties in the world. Uh, but psychology has what? Ideas, observations, right? It's very what we'll call soft science. And in order to become more accepted, um, the early psychologists like uh, Wundt built these very complex, like mechanical instruments to measure behaviors. Um, and now if you walk into a psychology lab, uh, in addition to neuroimaging stuff that is, you know, big and uh, expensive apparatus. Um, a lot of times when we study attitudes, for example, we'll just give you a questionnaire, you know, a piece of paper and a pencil, right, and measure your behavior that way. So, um, so there's a sort of um, sense of uh, inferiority in psychology at the time and also the idea that we have to start gaining credibility with the other sciences if we're going to be considered um, a legitimate science and accepted into the scientific community. Right, so um, that's what's going on there. Anyway, he built these machines to measure reaction time, and uh, that was very important because what's going to happen is there's going to be a merging of the philosophy of the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries with this emerging um, discipline of physiological. Uh, examination of human behavior. And that uh, merging is going to come in the 19th and 20th centuries, the late part of the 19th century, early part of the 20th century, with uh, my hero, Will, William James. Um, yeah, I have to get somebody to Photoshop me and uh, alter to William James sometimes. Um, so James is a philosopher. His specialty was British and French philosophy. And so he had gone over to Britain and France to study with the uh, philosophers there. And um, his interest was consciousness. What, what is consciousness? What is our sense of being conscious, our sense of experience, our sense of free will, right? We have this idea that we have free will, that we operate independently and that we go through life as a conscious human being. But how do we know that? How can we study it? Yeah, question. Oh, I was just going to say, when I think of consciousness, I think of Right. Um, but what James is going to say is, you know what? I've seen other kinds of consciousness. Um, when you slip into a fever, he says, when you slip into a fever and you get these visions of fantastical places and, and objects and animals and people that don't actually exist, where is that consciousness coming from? What is that? What is that conscious experience and what, what uh, composes it? So he's kind of interested in this, not only our normal state of waking consciousness as we normally call it, but also these uh, alternative states of consciousness. And he's actually going to explore that in this book called The Varieties of Religious Experience. He discovers that people have these fantastical conscious experiences. You know, they're evidently awake and aware, but they have these um, visions and these hallucinations that, uh, that he's trying to figure out where this stuff comes from. He's also important because, uh, as I said, he's studying in Britain and France about the consciousness and the will, but he finds out about what's going on in Germany with Wilhelm Wundt, and he goes over to Germany and um, checks out their labs, and he realizes over there that this is what has to happen. We have to have this merging of the scientific method of understanding behavior with the philosophical uh, explorations that we've been doing so far. 
And so he actually writes the first textbook of psychology called The Principles of Psychology, which is really based almost entirely on his philosophy. There really isn't any science at this point, except for some of the stuff that Wundt was doing and Weber was doing in terms of human behavior. So, um, but what's amazing is when we read back to the principles of psychology now, uh, we'll oftentimes find that things that he said was that he said was uh, happening in human behavior and the causes of human behavior are actually being shown to be uh, the case in science. So. Uh, that's, that's our hero. He was at Harvard, and that's where the first uh, actual psychology degree uh, came from. Uh, before that, there wasn't a psychology degree. You could get a, get a degree in philosophy or a degree in uh, uh, physiology, thank you. Uh, but you couldn't get a degree in uh, psychology. So. He also founded the American Psychological Association, which is now the largest association of psychologists with something like 75,000 members. So um, at that time, there was him and about half a dozen other uh, psychologists. So and I could go on and on. <laughs> Supplicate to William James. Um, okay, so in a current context, We've talked about the development of psychological thought. Now your textbook picks up kind of where I left off with Wundt and William James, and I'll let your textbook speak for um, sort of the development of psychology in the 20th century. What is it then that psychologists really do? What do psychologists do? Study behavior. What else? Mental processes, research, what else? Analysis of behavior, sure. Analysis of mental behavior and mental processes. What else, though? Diagnosis and treatment of psychological disorder, sure. Clinical psychology, yeah. Um, you know, Dr. Phil is a psychologist, although he's, um, his, his methods are somewhat suspect. But, um, anyway. Um, so yeah, so we study behavior and mental processes, and we do that using basic research. We run experiments and try and find out what causes behavior. But there's a second part of research, which is called applied research. And this is research that's trying to find the answer to a specific problem, usually some sort of problem in society. Um, an example of applied research would be uh, if I'm developing, for example, a jet fighter, and I have to develop the cockpit um, instrument panel, I have to study how pilots interact with that instrument panel to find out what's the most efficient way to lay out those instruments, right? That's a good example of applied research. Um, you know, video game companies do applied research all the time. You know, the good ones at least are looking at how people interact with the computer game, how they respond to it and how it affects them. And they can make changes in it that'll make the game more fun, more playable, something like that. Um, so that's sort of the applied part. The, and that applied research usually calls on the basic research that has shown basic principles in psychology, for example, in perception and sensation that allows someone to um, figure out how they might design an instrument panel more efficiently, right? Um, and then the other broad category is this idea of clinical or diagnosis and therapy. So the idea that uh, we know that there are psychological disorders, disorders that arise out of some uh, problem in the brain or in the mind. And um, so we have some basic research on that, uh, but oftentimes what we rely on a lot in this area are what's called clinical research. For example, uh, case studies. So a study of an individual who has maybe a very extraordinary uh, behavior, extraordinary psychological disorder that we want to study in more detail. 
Um, clinical research also does things like drug trials to see which drugs, for example, may be best at treating certain psychological disorders, right? And then the actual people who provide the therapy are considered in clinical practice. And these are the people that are on the ground working with individuals who are disturbed or uh, who are having difficulty in life and helping them to overcome those difficulties or those disturbances. Bless you. So these are the scientists. For the most part, these are the practitioners, but most of the training programs, the clinical training programs, work under the assumption that they will train you to be both a scientist and a practitioner. So you'll go through the same rigorous scientific training in a program where you're training for clinical work, uh, but you'll also learn uh, counseling, you'll also learn therapy. Um, because you have, as a clinician, you have to be able to read the scientific literature and understand it. Uh, and also, you're going to be called upon at some point, probably, to write up the results of one of your uh, cases uh, in the in the literature, so you want to be familiar with the um, with science as well. Questions on that stuff so far? Um, before I go into uh, the detail on the divisions of psychology, it's a little bit before 12. Why don't we take a short break here? Um, could you keep it to about seven or eight minutes and come back about five after? That's okay. We got to get through quite a bit of material today. actually going to skip through these two uh, and go to the perspectives, uh, psychological perspectives. Uh, what ways, what um, paradigms, what ways of thinking have affected how psychologists approach behavior uh, over a historical context? So um, when we think about the first notions of psychology and understanding psychology and studying psychology, um, you have to think about structuralism. And structuralism uh, really emerges at the beginning of the 1800s with uh, Weber and Wundt are part of structuralism. And the notion behind structuralism uh, is that you have to understand the very basic fundamental parts of behavior in order to understand behavior. And you have to sort of break down these complex human behaviors into very small pieces and understand those very small pieces. So it's very reductionistic in that way. It reduces complexity by um, studying the smallest possible elements of behavior. Uh, one of the things that happens is um, Darwin writes his uh, infamous uh, on the what was it called on the on the selection of species the on the origin of species yeah uh, so his book on essential essentially laying out the idea that phenotypes uh, physical and actually even behavioral characteristics are determined by an organism's response to its environment how it adapts its behavior based on the environment that it's in and based on the constraints of the environment. And what happens is um, psychologists begin to think about this and begin to say, well, that's kind of true for humans too. Humans adapt to their environment. They respond to their environment and they adapt their behavior. And what's important to understand is how behavior changes in response to stimuli, how behavior changes in response to changes in the environment. And that'll become known as functionalism. And William James uh, would be considered a functionalist. If you wanted to put a name on structuralism, uh, think of Edward Titchener. Titchener's idea was that 
We could only understand behavior by introspection, by looking inside at our very innermost experience. Uh, James, on the other hand, says, well, that's important, but it's very difficult to study that subjectively, for one thing. But what's more important, maybe, is how you respond to your environment and how that affects you. Following on uh, functionalism uh, will be behaviorism, which emerges really in the 1900s, 1910s. Uh, the names that you'll associate with behaviorism are Edward Thorndike, um, uh, B.F. Skinner, John Watson. Um, these are uh, psychologists that are thinking about behavior as a product entirely of the environment. It's the, what we can't study, they say, is this black box in here. We can see what stimuli you're presented with, and we can see what response you give to that stimulus, but we don't know what's happening in here. We can't say that you're thinking about it because we can't see inside here and we can't measure inside here. So um, this perspective really dominates for most of the 20th century. Um, and uh, so you'll hear the terms classical conditioning or Pavlovian conditioning. You'll probably might be familiar with the term Pavlov's dog. Um, you know, you ring a bell, the dog salivates. Um, that's behaviorism. You know, it doesn't say anything about what the dog thinks or what the dog experiences, just that when you ring the bell, the dog produces a behavior. Um, operant conditioning is what uh, Skinner will be associated with, and um, that begins to be able to explain much more complex behaviors, but we'll go into learning and conditioning a little bit uh, later here in the course. Yeah, question? Okay. Yes. So structuralism is more about describing the pieces of behavior, the pieces of human experience. Functionalism is more about why those behaviors exist. What function do they serve? Okay? It focuses less on structure and more on function. You know, I can say a car has wheels and a windshield and a hood and a trunk and doors. Or I can, I can approach a car from a different standpoint. A car is a vehicle which allows me to travel at a greater rate of speed than I would um, if I were walking. Really, one's the sort of, yeah, I guess you could say the how and the why, sure. Yeah. Um, so behaviorism uh, is the dominant paradigm. Uh, a response to behaviorism, behaviorism is very, um, it sort of takes the human out of the human in some ways. It says basically human beings are like any other organism. They respond to stimuli in their environment and those responses are predictable. Uh, and so some people responded to that by saying, well, wait a minute, humans have this idea like free will, right? We think, you know, we, we respond, we don't necessarily respond predictably all the time. We might be changing our responses, uh, but it may not be in response to some stimulus. And so the humanistic perspective kind of emerges as a response to behaviorism and says, um, actually, here's the deal. Humans are very complex beings that are always striving to achieve their greatest possible potential. Um, you know, so this is coming out of sort of the early and uh, mid-1960s when we're starting to develop these ideas of sort of human potential. You know, we came out of a very restrictive culture and entering a more uh, open culture. And so cultural changes are going to affect how psychologists are thinking. And so humanistic psychologists are saying, you know what? Um, this black box up here is important. What's going on up here is important. This free will, this consciousness, this striving to become the greatest human beings that we can um, is important. 
And so we have to look at people on a more holistic basis. We can't just look at their behaviors. We have to look at them as whole human beings. Uh, that uh, approach is still, um, is still used. Um, some people are still doing humanistic psych. Um, but it kind of terminates. Um, and simultaneously, what uh, sort of emerges to replace it uh, and, and surpass it is the um, cognitive perspective in psychology. The cognitive perspective uh, really is um, kind of the opposite of behaviorism also. The cognitive perspective says the brain and the processes in the brain are what um, are really the basis of our behaviors. So the cognitive perspective says, yeah, we can study these you know, stimuli and these responses, but we also need to understand what's going on up here in the brain. Um, memory, um, thinking, decision-making, um, language, how we develop language. These are all uh, interesting to cognitive psychologists. And in fact, there's a battle in terms of language acquisition theories that hinges in this period of the 1950s between behaviorism and the cognitive science perspective. And the cognitive science perspective ultimately um, sort of wins out and is more convincing in some ways. So the cognitive perspective uh, is dominant and still is dominant. Um, but what we start to see in the 1980s when we start to learn more about um, the biological bases of human behavior when we start to be able to do um, genetic testing a lot more easily, when we start to be able to understand how drugs affect behavior better, um, biopsychology really emerges as the dominant paradigm. And that's still the dominant paradigm today. Cognitive and biopsych are really the two dominant uh, paradigms in how we understand behavior now and what approaches we take to research and understand behavior. So that's basically the kind of chronological flow of how psychologists have approached understanding behavior. That doesn't mean that we're not going to come back to one of these later on or that there aren't people working in all these areas right now. It just means that most psychologists are heading in particular directions. And they do that because there are important discoveries made in these areas. And so the research goes toward those important discoveries. Um, so what mostly is going on today, um, neuroscience is huge. Uh, basically, looking at the brain, looking at the structures of the brain, looking at the function of the brain, looking at the biochemistry of the brain, uh, the brain, the brain, the brain, the brain. The brain is the center. Right now, most psychologists are monists. They consider the brain and the mind one entity. When the brain dies, the mind dies, or the soul dies. Um, so the neuroscience perspective uh, is real big. If you want to get a grant in studying behavior, a good way to do that is to put some sort of brain imaging study in there, you know, some sort of functional MRI or some sort of um, uh, magnetic resonance imaging or PET scan that scans the brain for activity. Looking at what's going on in the brain while you're doing things, that's real big right now. And so you'll see in the newspaper all these articles with these really pretty pictures of brains lighting up when people do things. It's not entirely very um, convincing. We don't really have the science yet to really understand what's going on in, in, in your brain that well. It's, uh, and I'll talk about this when we talk about um, neuroscience, but it's kind of like looking at a house and seeing the lights go on and off in different parts of the house and trying to assume that there are people in there doing those lights turning on and off and assuming what those people are doing inside the house when all you can see are the lights going on and off. Yeah, question? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is very exciting, and it's very like, you know, ooh, look, I can see activity, but what is actually really going on in there, we don't know, right? It's still a, this infant, it's sort of an in... Yeah, that's really what we do. We say, oh, 
the amygdala lights up when someone gets angry, so it must be associated with anger, but we really don't know what's going on in there. Yeah. Uh, social and cultural psychology. Social psych really begins in the 1930s, uh, but it really starts to take off after World War II. Um, cultural psych is relatively new. Um, essentially, up until the last 30 years, maybe, uh, most of what we know, knew, know really, about human behavior was based on experiments that were run in uh, university laboratories on undergraduate psychology students somewhere at a big university in the Midwest, probably, or on the East Coast. Um, and very little was known about how those behaviors might generalize, how they might apply to people in other cultures. So, for example, you know, people in uh, the United States we consider very collectivistic. I'm sorry, very individualistic. You know, they have this uh, notion that they are individuals and that they operate as individuals in this society. Whereas when we look at other cultures, they're very collectivistic. They have this notion that they, their behavior is a product of and part of some greater social context, and they're much more aware of that. And so um, how does that affect people's behavior? What happens is we run these experiments in the United States, and then we take them over to, say, Japan, which uh, is the poster child for collectivistic cultures. And we say, uh, gee, does this experiment work? And we go, uh, no. Gee, I wonder why. Uh, and then we have to start looking for how culture affects behavior. So that's, um, that's real big right now. Evolutionary psych. Uh, has developed over the last about 20 years or so uh, a lot more research in understanding um, how uh, adaptation, human adaptation in the past to environmental contingencies in the past, in our evolutionary past, affects our behavior in a contemporary context. So uh, in the lab that I worked in in uh, British Columbia, we were looking, for example, at prejudice and stereotyping behaviors and how they may have been influenced by our past responses to uh, you know, strange individuals coming into your village from somewhere that you don't know, right? Um, and how that may be carrying over into a contemporary context. So these behaviors that allowed us to survive in the past carry over even though they may not be very useful uh, or even damaging in this context. And then positive psychology is very new. Uh, up until the 1990s, really, most of psychology focused on behaviors that were a problem for society, like antisocial behaviors, for example. Uh, and very few focused on things like pro-social behaviors, such as altruism, friendship, um, uh, uh, forgiveness. Uh, these are all behaviors that, you know, we kind of poo-pooed in the past as being, you know, who cares? But really, we're finding out that that's very important, too. So uh, positive psych is a growing field right now, too. So that's kind of where research is going, uh, mostly in, uh, in these areas. Positive psych? I don't remember. That's what it said in the textbook? Um, Well, in fact, um, what, what they might have been studying is that fact right there, um, that, uh, that there were individuals who were very successful on one level, but very unsuccessful on another, and what was that product, and maybe um, emotional intelligence is part of this, and maybe they were starting to look at emotional intelligence as a function of that. That's probably where that came from, yeah. And we'll be talking about different intelligences and emotional intelligence when we go through the chapter on intelligence, yeah. Good question. Okay. Well, that's my spiel mostly on history and how we've gotten to where we are and kind of what we're doing right now in terms of a, the field of psychology. Um, I'm going to move into the scientific method, this 
systems and methods, as I call it, of psychology. Um, so let's go there. Chapter two. Is it chapter two? Systems and methods? Systems and methods. What are the systems that we use in studying psychology and what are the methods? What's a system, first of all? Uh, hold on. What's a system? Just define system. Yeah, what's that? A framework. That's a good, that's a good start. A system partly is a framework. What else? Uh, a framework of processes. Yeah. Okay, those processes or, or principles have a sequence, have a have a have a predictable sequence that results in some outcome. A system is like um, this classroom is a system. We all have ideas, we all have purposes, we all have roles here, and we're fulfilling those roles simultaneously and systematically, right? You are in a role of students and you're doing your student role, I'm doing the teacher role, um, and we're doing this as a system. This um, campus operates as a system. It's a bunch of little pieces that work together to result in some uh, outcome, some process. And that's what, that's what the scientific method really is. is it's, a it's a set of uh, processes that when they work together in a particular way, we get a particular outcome. Um, let's talk about systems and methods on a very basic level. Let, let me try to give you an example. If I show you a picture like this, what happens? Some people smiled. What else happened for you? I didn't hear anybody go, oh, I usually get that. Inside you went, oh, what else did you go inside, do inside? Did you get kind of warm and nurturing, right? So I can observe, I observed some of your behaviors. I saw your smiles. Um, some of those behaviors I couldn't observe. I couldn't observe that inner, aww, right? Um, but that's really what we study. We give you a stimulus and we study your behavior and your mental processes. Really? How funny. So individual differences or differences even by age group. Age groups are going to have different responses, right? So, so yeah. So now, um, so what we're looking at is how a particular stimulus evokes a particular response. That's very behavioristic. But, you know, I wasn't just looking at your behavior. I was also saying, what are you experiencing inside? What's going on for you inside? Right. Um, and that's psychology. That's a psychology experiment, essentially. Um, it wasn't very controlled. It wasn't very systematic. But it's essentially what we do. We observe your responses to stimuli in the environment or what's going on around you or what's going on inside you. Right. Um, or some situation we put you in or a drug we give you, we observe your responses, right? Okay, so let's do the boring stuff first. Everybody needs to know this who does science. Um, there are these things called canons. Anybody want to, what's the definition of a canon? Not the kind you use on a battlefield. What's that? Yeah, it is. That's the, really, um, it comes from the ecclesiastical idea of some sort of law that comes from God, right? Um, and so we still use that terminology, which is a really weird thing to do in science, but we're given these laws of science by God. The four canons of science. Um, first one is determinism. And this is the notion that the universe is predictable and systematic. We can understand the universe. 
you know, that goes against the idea that the, um, you know, that God created the universe and it's beyond our ability to understand because if we could understand that, we could understand God, right? Um, that events in the universe have a systematic cause. We can understand what leads up to an event and what the result of that is, what the result of those, that cause is. And determinism also relies on the idea that we can come up with a theory, a proposed reason for why things happen. All right? So that's determinism. The second canon uh, I'll refer to as empiricism. And the notion of empiricism is that we can make, and in fact must make, systematic observations of uh, behavior and the environment around us. Um, we have to observe things in a very orderly, systematic way. We can't just sort of go about willy-nilly observing things. We have, to, we have to define how we're going to go about observing them and measuring them in advance and observe them and measuring them very systematically and carefully. That's an actual word. Oh, whoops. Yeah, I'm sorry. E-M-P-I-R-I-C-I-S-M. Sorry. Thank you for pointing that out. Yeah, like empirical evidence. Yeah. Yep. That's the derivation. Yep. The third uh, canon, parsimony. Parsimony says uh, if... I'm given two possible explanations for something. Um, the simpler of those two is preferred. In science, we generally try to find the simplest explanation possible. Um, you know, why, uh, why did the uh, patriots uh, have an un, un, uh, unbroken winning streak this season? Go Patriots, because they're awesome, because they cheated. Uh, you know, we could come up with all kinds of bizarre explanations. And the idea with parsimony is, um, what's the sort of simplest, most likely kind of explanation? Um, you know, that, that problem is too big to sort of give one parsimonious response to. There's so many variables and factors in there that it's going to be very difficult to do that. Um, you know, probably the most likely one is they had good coaching and good training and they did really well. Um, but there's always these other explanations. Uh, you know, God endowed them with particular characteristics this year. Um, the, uh, uh, who is the uh, quarterback whose girlfriend is Jessica Simpson? Yeah, because she went to the game, they lost, right? What? Do you hear about this? And it's like, um, and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, was it, I don't, I don't know who it was. So the idea was this quarterback had like never lost a game, and the the game that his girlfriend happens to come to, they lose the game, and so everybody says, oh, it's the girlfriend's fault. What? Where you know, like, where were the feminists? Where were the people that were going, um, this is very misogynistic and sexist. So, first of all, girlfriends come to games, quarterbacks lose games. Those are two different possibilities. And the combination of the two happening is probably very unlikely. So, anyway, don't get me started on that. That's, but that's, that's a very, that's a very complex re answer to the question of why did he lose that game. So, in order to try to understand behavior, we want to try to look for the simplest possible explanation and work out from there. If that explanation doesn't turn out to be supported by evidence, then we look to a slightly more complex explanation. If that doesn't turn out, we move out to something more complex, right? Uh, you might have heard the term Occam's razor, 
right? Occam's razor is the same principle of parsimony. And then testability is uh, one of the canons of science. Um, testability relies on the idea that um, I have to, if I have a hypothesis for why this football player lost the game, I have to be able to test that hypothesis. And more importantly, I have to approach it from the aspect of falsifiability. I have to be able to falsify my hypothesis. That avoids bias. That avoids the temptation for the experimenter to set up the experiment in such a way that it proves their hypothesis true. But rather, the experimenter has to set up the experiment in such a way that they're trying to prove that their hypothesis is untrue. Um, and also, testability does another thing. It sets up the option, the opportunity for replicability, the ability to replicate the experiment, that someone else can come along and use exactly the same methods or maybe change the methods slightly and see if they get the same result. If I get, you know, uh, if I run an experiment in Ohio and then I run it in Japan and I get the same result, then I've replicated it, even in a different culture. And that makes it stronger. That makes it more likely that that is a universal uh, determinant of behavior. Whereas if I run an experiment today in this class and I run it in the next class and it doesn't work, that reduces my confidence in the experimental uh, system and in my explanation for the behavior, okay? So determinism, empiricism, parsimony, and uh, testability. One of the things that this system does is it helps us to avoid the sort of natural human foibles that we have of trying to come up with explanations for complex things um, and trying to explain things in ways that we can't demonstrate, right? If it's not testable, if it's not parsimonious, if we can't systematically observe it, it's going to be very difficult to, um, uh, to really convince someone else that this is a reliable phenomenon. But that doesn't stop people from believing in uh, UFOs, things that they haven't empirically observed um, and that they certainly don't have parsimonious explanations and are um, unlikely to be testable, right? Um, psychic phenomena, things like that. Oh, yeah, sure. I don't disbelieve in UFOs, for example, the existence of even alien, not just UFOs, but alien, aliens from another planet, right? I don't have any evidence to disprove it, but I certainly don't have any evidence. I haven't been presented with any good evidence to, um, to call it true either. I don't, what's that? I'm sorry. So, right. So, uh, certain people, for example, my, as I said, my fiance uh, is a indigenous healer, and um, she's able to sense uh, spirits and souls. Um, she can, see, in fact, see them. Uh, I don't deny her subjective experience, right? That is her subjective experience. And in fact, one of the things we'll study later on when we study sensation and perception is synesthesia. The idea that uh, when we experience a stimulus in one sensory system, other sensory systems also experience a stimulus. So some people, for example, when they see a particular color, they hear a particular tone at the same time. So um, I don't deny that experience, but I can't reliably sit her down and say, okay, in a laboratory condition now, um, I would like you to experience your, uh, your ability to sense spirits. 
and I'd sit and wait, 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 right? Um, so if I can't replicate it, if I can't test it reliably, I can't prove it or disprove it. So belief and science are two different things. Okay, so the next set of terms that I want to clarify for you that we have some misconceptions of, and that's one of the reasons that I like to go through this. Hypotheses, theories, and laws. Oh, my. Here's a hypothesis. Essentially, a hypothesis is um, my educated guess um, about some specific research problem. What the cause of a particular uh, not, not what the cause of a particular problem is, um, what the particular results will be of a experimental system that I run. Now, the important thing about a hypothesis is, is that it's not just a guess, but that it's an educated guess. And by educated, I mean it's um, informed by our prior observations of behavior and also by prior findings by other people. Um, and again, testability. I have to be able to test that hypothesis to falsify it, okay? If it's not a testable hypothesis, it's not very useful to me. It's not something that I can actually measure and show to be, uh, show to be true, then it's difficult for me to, uh, uh, to use it. A lot of people will use the word theory when they really mean hypothesis. Um, and here's the deal in science. You know, like a lot of us will say, I have a theory for why so-and-so, you know, why so-and-so lost the football game. Um, a theory would be more about why quarterbacks lose football games. A theory is a broad, a, a broader um, it, it encompasses a broader range of experiences um, and tries to explain that larger piece of behavior. A hypothesis explains one specific little piece of behavior. Um, and a theory gains prominence, it gains um, believability by um, generating lots of hypotheses that test that theory. So more and more hypotheses that are generated from a theory that support that theory make that theory more likely to be accepted. Um, when a theory generates hypotheses that are falsified, then we start to lose confidence in that theory as being an explanatory theory. So you're all familiar probably with the theory of natural selection. I was talking about Darwin earlier, evolution. That's a theory about how particular organisms have come to be the way that they are. Uh, there have been a huge number of hypotheses generated from that theory. Those hypotheses have been tested and shown to be valid. Um, there have been a few hypotheses generated from it that have been falsified, but the overwhelming majority of evidence, uh, hypothetical uh, testing that's been done, has supported that theory. So that theory has prominence, right? We don't call it a fact or what I'm going to say in a second, which is a law, um, because it's still uh, developing as a theory. And then the um, sort of highest level of um, understanding or explanation is a law. And a law is, um, is a, essentially a mature theory, a theory that's been around long enough and it has withstood um, other possible theoretical explanations long enough that people say, this is pretty much true. What's that? It really hasn't been disproven, at least um, uh, it, enough, and yet. That's a, that's a good point. So we've got this uh, idea of the general theory of uh, gravity, right? We, uh, the law of gravity, I'm sorry, the law of gravity. The law of gravity um, essentially exists because 
there have been um, numerous possible other theories, and those theories haven't panned out. And so this theory has become a law that we have this gravitational system. But now we're starting to see with the theoretical physics some challenges to what we had previously believed to be laws, physical laws. And those physical laws are starting to now uh, be questioned and there are competing theories, string, it's like string theory and all this stuff. Those are competing theories that are trying to go up against that, those laws and theories in the physical sciences. So theories are always open to falsifiability. Falsifiability, falsifiability. How, you know, it's always questioning. It's always never taking things for granted. Um, is there some new information, some new knowledge that's going to uh, better inform our theories, right? Questions on this? Let me see where I'm at here. Okay, I think I'm going to hold this until next class session. Um, so uh, please uh, finish up reading Chapter 2 if you haven't. Yes, ma'am? Oh, the quizzes. I'm sorry. I should give those to you now. Um, let me stop the podcast here. <laughs>